Welcome to the Lisa Wexler Show podcast. Think of it like a magazine or a box of chocolates. You never know what you'll get. From politics to pop culture, healthcare to legal issues, it's all here. And my behind-the-wheel chats are personal observations created especially for you on podcast only. Enjoy. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Joining us right now, Alexis Harrison and Maria Weingarten. Hi. Hey, good morning. Great good to morning. see you. Good morning. Are you, are you the founders of 169strong.org? Is yes, this your we are. organization? Mm-hmm. Okay, Alexis, make that closer to you. Don't don't feel shy. Get that mic right in front of you. Good, you too, Maria. Put it up if you need to, so you're not leaning and hunching over it. Got Be it. Be comfortable. Good, good. So, ladies, uh, it's so nice to meet you in person. You too. I Likewise. feel like I know you. We've been chatting so long. So, we're at the beginning of the long legislative session. And that means that uh, some people are going to be introducing bills again that they didn't get passed last year or they're going to tweak ones. And so we're still right in the middle of this. We're still right in the middle of this conversation and this this heated advocacy that affordable housing is the panacea, is the answer to a lot of Connecticut's problems with the recognition that we do have expensive housing. I mean, that is a recognition, but affordable housing as a phrase has come to mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. I'm just going to begin with this, Alexis Harrison. Uh, You've been responsible for food drives in Fairfield. You are somebody who is a committed citizen activist. You are also on the TPZ, the Planning and Zoning Commission in Fairfield, correct? Correct. And you founded this organization, uh, ct169strong.org which 169 stands for? Um, Our 169 municipalities across Connecticut. What prompted you to feel that you needed to start this organization? Yeah, and I, you know, I'm not the sole person responsible for CT169's creation. Maria and many other, you know, um, very committed citizens are as well across Connecticut. I, you know, I'm, I came to zoning. I never thought I would run for zoning, but I got involved with zoning because I'm very passionate about protecting our environment. And I feel when we lose our control of our land, we lose control, we lose the power to protect it. And to me, protect our land is something very powerful, something that I take seriously. I live in Fairfield, um, it's a coastal community. I think the DEP says that we're going to be, we're going to have 20 inches of water in our in our um, beach area in the next 25 years. Yeah, it's extraordinary. I was just talking about Norwalk. They're, they're meeting to try and address this to try and come up with plans. Right. We don't have much time. Right. No, it, yeah, 25 years will we'll not It's nothing. It's a blink exactly. of an eye. Yeah. Exactly. So that's how I approach zoning. I That I ran for zoning because I also view it as we're also a mini EPA. We also, there are to not only to approve applications, but we're also there to be, um, you know, to, to be, you know, stalwarts and to, and to, you know, oversee our environmental protection. That's something that, that matters. So... I would love to see your eyes. Oh, okay. Let's try and do it like that. That's good. So, so used to talking to you over the phone. I know, <laughs> but I like to do the, I I like to to do the eye-to-eye contact. <laughs> so, um, Maria Weingarten, what brought you to CT169strong.org? So I came from it not having a background in zoning, but I am a realtor. You're so a realtor? I am. So that, to me, um, has given me some of the background to understand some of the issues that oh, have, sure. have been over the years related to access to housing. So, And really to understand how market conditions impact. You know, I'm so glad to talk to you as a realtor because one of my frustrations has always been, in general, 
and it's the macro versus the micro, a theme I come back to a lot, that sometimes people advocate for what they want on their particular land because they think in the short term it will generate commerce or money or whatever, but they don't see that in the big picture people are attracted to a community for open spaces, for trees that are very tall, for the fact that not every house is built on a postage stamp of land. And so while there might be the micro of one person advocating, I need the variance, I need this for me, I need this for me, and sometimes I see realtors doing that in, for a client, let's say. But in the big picture, I think sometimes people miss what was the attractiveness of the neighborhood to begin with. Very true. Very true. And and something that we've seen as we've gone to all of our zoning uh, rallies that we've held is that every community of our 169 are unique and, yes, and, they and are. charming. charming. You know, and that's the thing. And, and it's it's this word character that's been villainized. And it should be. And taken away from the statute. I objected from, to that. Absolutely. I did, too. And, and that's a problem because there really is this immutable characteristic to all of these communities. And, and that's what everyone is drawn to. And that's why when I take people around, they sort of find the town that fits them or the mm-hmm. city that fits them. Yes, exactly right. Right. And Are you a realtor only in Fairfield or do you go to different towns? No, I'm you? in New Canaan. So You're in New Canaan. I'm in New Canaan and I've lived there for 22 years. Okay. And, and so, um, but New Canaan I, I do- has a very special feeling about it. It does. Very. It does. And it's off, you know, off off highways. It's like its own little spot. And yeah. it, it really is. It's and it's just such a tight knit community. And that's what's so wonderful about it. that's why I fell in love with it. And and I had a friend who grew up there and so that's what kind of brought me to that community. Um, and so I'd been very involved in, in the school system and involved with a lot of PTC and a lot of the parent-teacher organizations and all the other things that go on. And now I'm on the Board of Finance. So for okay, me... Okay, so both of you are very active in your towns, knee-deep in what's going on. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and just to, yeah. just to you know, kind of pile on to what Maria said, a few weeks ago, my family and I, we drove up to the Goshen area. I wanted to see the Cornwall oh, Bridge because yeah. I was dying to see it. And I just, re- I was blown away on how beautiful our state really is. Incredible, Goshen is unbelievable. And when I was, when we were driving up there, you know, looking at the Farmington River and all these different beautiful woods, I was thinking, how could a one size fits all approach to zoning ever happen in Connecticut? That's what I was thinking about when, when I, you know, when we were traversing through this area, and I, it just came home to me. I'm like, it just, you know, we're so unique in Connecticut, and we have to remember that. So what is it that Hartford, do you think, would like to see in the way of change from the status quo? Alexis, I'll let you start. Well, I, you know, what we've seen in the last few years are an abundance of bills that create that one with the idea of creating affordability in Connecticut when it comes to housing units. Um, we've seen a fair share bill that would mandate every town to create X amount of housing units um, there's no formula. We don't really know how many they would have to create, but fair share is one of them. And this is a bill that was created largely by housing advocates. Desegregate Connecticut wants to build um, dense density around our train stations, which are where? By our, where, in our flood zones. So we've seen just a lot of bills. I think it, what, the first year we got together, Maria, it was like 12 bills. We called it the, the, the dirty, dirty dozen, dozen. <laughs> yeah. bills. Is this being, yeah. well, what do you think is the motivating force? Do you think it's um, that they just want to see cheaper housing? Do they want to see only cheaper rental housing? And who benefits from this? Let's follow the money. Well, I, I would say, and I think we, you know, it's a, it's a very complicated issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially when they say, well, there's so much of a need for affordable housing, yet a lot of the bills that we're saying don't create uh, generational wealth. They're not meant to create homes where people buy their homes what they're encouraging are rentals so they say they're pro homes but the reality is they're pro rentals and that doesn't create generational wealth so that's sort of what we're struggling with when i think about what these bills are all about it's just about density and i go back to the first year where sarah bronan had her talks her desegregate connecticut talks and what she said was well what we really want is to build a whole bunch of units so that we have more tax base and so then the state can do really cool stuff or really fun stuff with the extra revenues that they get from the state income tax revenue so interestingly enough that's it's it's a free option to the state right because at the end of the day the state doesn't necessarily have to you know upgrade your 
fire department, upgrade your your septic system, your sewer system. No, your... provide more money for your school system. They, they do some matching, but the vast majority comes from local taxpayers. Right. So, so that's the point, is it's really about increasing density to increase the, the base. So, so it's thinking that if you have density, it, it lowers, it, it spreads the cost, these, these costs. But there's benchmarks where when you have to hit a certain amount of infrastructure, you have to do significant expansion. And when those things happen, you have to understand how much capacity you have in your sewer, how much you have and what you can sustain, and how much can you do density in a town where, like New Canaan has very narrow roads. When we, when we went up and had our, our, our event in Fairfield, Fairfield had some wide roads. You know, So every town is very different. So to create one size policy like they had in the last bill where you had, they, re, they would require no, no off-street parking, that makes no sense in New Canaan. And, and so they did that as in a optional that you could opt out of or, or parking or, or to mandate parking where it's only one unit for oh, up to one bedroom and no more than two parking spots for two bedroom or more. So those are the issues where you, you create and you don't have enough parking spots. So then you create lots and then you have to have parking, you know, parking lots where you have to put cars. And this assumption that everybody can just exist without a car in Connecticut is sort of is false. Right. Because, I mean, you think about how many we have spurs for all of our commuter lines, but I can't get from New Canaan to Wilton, for example. That's right. So it's it's not convenient. Mm -hmm. So you don't have the kind of transit that you have in in a larger metropolitan area. We're chatting with Maria Weingarten and Alexis Harrison, 203-333-9422. They're in the studio. We're talking about housing and approaches. CT169.strong is their advocacy organization.org. It's a not-for-profit, correct? We are just a grassroots organization. Grassroots non- organization. No you don't take money or anything status, like that. Okay. Right. And, um, okay, so let's talk. So let me bring this back to you. So, Maria, what is what is the... Um, what is the what is the approach of the legislators who want to see more affordable housing in the suburbs towards the cities? In other words, we have both affordable and non-affordable housing in cities, but we have a tremendous amount of density in cities. Mm-hmm. We also have a disproportionate amount of the negatives in our cities. We haven't done a great job, in my opinion, in Connecticut with our cities. They lag in terms of educational, truly lag in terms of educational equity. I mean, it's it's horrible. Agreed. Um, what is it? We have the majority, the vast majority of fourth graders in Hartford, like 85% not reading on grade level. I mean, it's just staggeringly terrible numbers, and that was before COVID. Right. Okay. Um, we have poverty in our cities. We have crime in our cities. So mm-hmm. we have poverty and crime, and we have undereducated. Where does the... Where does the notion that, and then we have dense housing, mm-hmm. right? And sometimes we even have state-owned housing. We have public housing. Right. So where does that, in terms of the success or failure of that housing as a policy to improve people's lives, how does that figure in the thinking of the legislators? Do you see what I'm trying to get at? Maybe I'm not being clear. Maybe. I, you know, I the way I sort of started thinking about it was... You know, uh, it, it occurred in New Canaan, and I'm going to keep referencing it because I live there. That's your town. Um, so we tried to build 100% affordable. And so back in 2018, um, we needed some we, – we have um, set up a housing fund year, like over 15 years ago where any sort of transaction that happens, there's a certain percentage that's put aside toward developing affordable housing. And we did okay. that 15 years ago. Okay. So we've been developing affordable. So we had a plan ready to go, and we needed some additional seed funding. And the state had allocated some money to us. But when Lamont was elected, he decided to freeze that money. And then six months later said, nope, we're not going to give it to you. So then we had to go back and find somewhere else to to, to get it. So then I started thinking about, well, who is getting the money? So so if they have some allocated funds, who are these funds going to when Mm -hmm. they decide to build? Good question. And so the reality is they go to the the largest cities, 50% of any funding. So um, it was forwarded to me a a, um, press release from 2021, I think it was May 2021, that Lamont put out. And um, of the funding, f- over 50% went to Hartford, New Haven, and Waterbury, I think. And then the rest were just sort of scattered out. 
Um, but only one city in Fairfield County, um, I think it was Stanford, received like a little over a million dollars, and that was it. And all these other towns were getting, you know, tens of millions of dollars. So it, it's a real um, – you've, you've created a concentration of poverty in Hartford in particular, as you, as you mentioned. Is- um, I want to say it's 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 over forty percent. I think I was looking at something last night that showed that it, over forty percent of their housing is affordable in Hartford right now. That's astounding. So, and that's be, you know, and there's there's different factors that may have caused that, right? So, like if you've removed your your top industry, right? So if you've if if you know the, the insurance industry has gone, mm. and a lot of that is has left your community, mm. it's really changed you know, the, the complexion of what your city is. So what are we doing? What are legislators doing is, is the question I have. That's to, my question, too, is, is, is to look at the big picture of the state. Right. And, and what are they doing to, 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 to bring back the economy for the entire state? You know, now Fairfield County benefits and it's grown because of its, it's so close to metro New York area. The rest of the state doesn't necessarily benefit from that as well. It's changed a little bit since COVID because you can really work from anywhere. Mm-hmm. But in some instances, but, but really that's the problem is we really need to address the economic factors that are preventing businesses from truly coming here and blaming it just on not having a affordable housing is, is, is the wrong way to, to approach that. Yeah, I also want to say we do have an affordable housing law. We've talked about this numerous times, Lisa. I'm going to stop you right there. We're okay. going to get back to okay. 830G right after okay. this. Correct me if I'm wrong, ladies, and I'm paraphrasing you, but you really believe that local communities should have control over the zoning issues affecting their towns. Absolutely. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. And what you're against is this proposal that are that are coming in the form of different kinds of proposals that Hartford thinks it knows better and would like more of a one-size-fits-all approach. Is that right? Correct. So, Alexis, you had started to talk about this infamous, notorious 830G. Explain to the public what it is and why you think it is... You know, lacking. Why you don't? I mean, eight thirty G was founded, let's say, over like just over thirty years ago, and it tar- every town is targeted to have ten percent of their housing stock deemed affordable. So, a lot of towns, my town in, in particular, Fairfield doesn't have not in particular, but my town would not have that. A lot of towns do not meet that threshold. So, well, because their definition of affordable is what. I believe it's 30% of your income is uh, is based on. Excuse me, thirty percent of. Thirty percent of your household income is right toward Based housing. On, toward, toward housing, excuse me. So, so they say in general that you're if if you're spending more than thirty percent of your income on housing, that you're you're challenged your housing. You know, I know that, a lot of people have spent over thirty yeah. percent who take on mortgages they can barely afford. Sure they do. What well, are you talking and about? And they and they make those decisions at like every day we make economic decisions. But I mean, what? So there must be more to it than that for affordable. Maybe it has to. Does it have to do with the income of the people? I mean, what are we looking at? Well, in terms of providing a lower level, they, they that you've targeted homes that are going to be for forty years at sixty to eighty percent of the mean average income for That's the what state. It is. Thank you, Maria. Okay, thank yeah. you. Okay, thank you. All right. So, and this and this ten percent is net, not anything fixed. In that the after forty years, it goes back to the. Developer, so allows developers to build. They can largely ignore the zoning laws that most of people have to adhere to, as long as they're building affordable housing. As long as thirty percent of their housing units are are affordable. Thirty okay. or ten? No, thirty. Thirty, 30. Yeah. for eight thirty. So for 830G, 10% is a target for every town. If they go, to, so oh, I see. So ten percent is a target for the town. But if a particular developer says, "I'm putting up this apartment building, and I'm designating that thirty percent will be affordable units," then you zoning commissioners can't tell me how high it needs to be. You can't tell me about setbacks. You can't tell me how many bedrooms per acre, how many bathrooms per acre. Basically, I can cut down all the trees, and I can do whatever the heck I want. And you really can't tell me much at all. Exactly. There's a very narrow threshold. It's basically <laughs> public I, health and safety and <laughs> other. Public health and safety and other. And okay. as we know, we've seen this story many times. You know, neighborhoods and many of these um, 830G complexes are popping up in more modest neighborhoods. So they're getting rid of more organic, affordable housing. Right. They're getting rid of two families and things like that. Is that what you mean? Yeah. And property yeah. values, you know, go down. And most neighbors who do want to fight it, they don't have the means to hire an attorney, an engineer, a wetlands expert, what have you, to fight against this. So it's really a true David and Goliath situation. Unfortunately, and like you said, 
these apartments, apartment units, or these affordable housing units only have to be um, affordable for 40 years. So once those 40 years sunset, guess what? You have the density, but not the affordability. So you're starting from scratch. No, and not time. only that, they come back as market rate. And market if they're rate, rental, exactly. the landlord gets a windfall. And what happens because to the people they get who have the lived there? Land, they get the apartment back. Right. And who is? And what happens? Are we going to be throwing out people who've lived there for many years? Are we going to be evicting people? And actually, that is now That's an interesting question. We did. So what we're seeing now, if you take a look at what's happening now in the legislature, and someone had said to me, and I haven't had a yeah. chance to find the, the information, but there seems to be, and, and maybe it's in Hartford, and I'm not sure exactly where, but I want to get a hold of the information as to when some of these units are now going to start rolling off, because we're getting there, where some units only were restricted for 30 years or whatever. So... Now, if you take a look, you'll see that there's bills focused on rent stabilization, and you think about all the things that happened during COVID where landlords were, you know, not allowed to evict, not allowed to collect rent. No, not, not only that, Connecticut is allocating money, which I personally think is a good thing, uh, towards helping people defend evictions. Right. Because, you know, housing, it's not a civil right like jail or criminality, but it's an incredibly important right in society. And people feel like that's David versus Goliath, too. Yeah. So so there's the point is that we're starting to see now some legislation that's coming through about what what is rent, you know, what what rent escalations will be allowed what you know so i think all of these again it's sort of where the state has made a rule and said okay you're you've agreed that you will now make this you know a affordable for 30 years 40 years whatever it is and now we're going to tell you no now we're going to add this on so you can't evict someone you can't escalate a rent you can't you know so so it's sort of like it's moving the goalpost a little bit interesting on. yeah so it's it's interesting so so it, it's Something that I, th I think about, again, in New Canaan, where we've built 100% affordable. And so we've... we've Who owns the 100% affordable? We have New Canaan Neighbors. It's, it's a non-profit. A non-profit. A non-profit has built it for New Canaan, and it's 100% affordable. And is it intended for a specific <laughs> age range? Is it like senior nope. housing or nope. anything like that? No. Nope. And how do people get on this? Because I think this is another huge opaque aspect of affordable housing. Most people have no idea how to get on a list, much less get to the top of that list. Or they're on numerous Multiple lists. lists. Yeah. So you don't even know. So you may have a list of, you know, however many people on your wait list, but that same person could be on 20 lists around the state. Yeah, okay. quick story. I have to tell you. Yes. I know a woman, a friend of a friend. She was on a waiting list for affordable housing in multiple cities. As you know, they apply in multiple cities. She got approval to go to Ridgefield. It's great. She was moving to Ridgefield. Two weeks later, she got a note from Manchester. Okay, you're good to go in Manchester. Good so for there's her. Clearly, but, she got lucky. She got lucky. But clearly, there's no one's cleaning up these lists. Why are you... If she got approved by Ridgefield a few weeks earlier, why is Manchester telling her she did Because is they're approved? very decentralized, I can tell you that. I mean, the technology, yeah. there is no technology being used here. There's no system or... No, HUD know. has one centralized system where it tells you, but that's for... That that's for the places that they put on that they decide you know have an opening. No, it's, if you're looking for affordable housing, it's very frustrating. And let's talk about what we mean by affordable. Let's let's just get at that for a minute because we're giving the developers a gift and we're saying you don't have to comport with local zoning. We're saying that you don't have to care about architectural character or what looks what anything looks like. And yet, in reality, even with those criteria. A lot of poorer people are saying, that's not affordable to me. Mm -hmm. That's right. actually quite expensive. Right. And, and I think you also have to realize that you need to have jobs, right? So you want to have the opportunity for people. And if you think about what's happened in Connecticut, a lot of those higher wage jobs have left our state. And so, you know, again, you're, you're sort of trickling down our state into lower level of income and and that's also affecting so impacting our state revenue. You you gals are very bright, and you have a command of the status quo, and you know that you have. Re and I can see that you've rejected some proposed solutions to the problems that have been enunciated. What are your solutions? I mean, I would like to see serious modifications to 30G. I think that's a realistic uh, approach right now. I think we have to fix. I, also, I think we have to be honest about what the problem is. Yeah. We so don't what do really you think have a real inventory is? of what the housing crisis is, so-called oh, housing crisis. Interesting. Do I, you know, I've heard of, you know, 
you know, different advocacy groups put out numbers, but do we really have a number of what we're supposed to be having or what, what, what how many housing units For we the need? demand. What's the demand? Because well, the state of Connecticut has not grown. It's the same three million people we've been for the last umpteen years. There's tremendous outward migration. So that's yes. why I, I think before you can solve a problem, you need to have an honest discussion. What is the problem? You need to, fi- you need to figure that out. And we don't have any primary research to say how many units we need or what the population is, but we need we need to figure this out. And the naturally affordable housing is something that we haven't talked about as well too much, and and that exists. So you mean like in law apartments, stuff like that? Well, what do you mean it, at ADUs? Yeah, you you can have it as as an accessory dwelling unit. You can have it as you know just a lower cost rental in even in towns like New Canaan or wherever. So you, you they exist. I know they do. So you know in every town, and that's not. And one of the reasons that we don't know about them is because the owners of these properties don't want to register them on their deed. Right. And you can't blame them. Correct. They've made a decision that they want to have a roommate or a house share or a rental room. I know tons of them exist in my own community, and. They are allowed to do that. They're a single-family homeowner, but they don't want to go to the town and say, my house is going to be deeded this way because I don't want to affect a resale value. Sometimes they don't want anyone to know their business. Right. They just don't want to do it. So so to me, if, if we have this naturally existing, one of the interesting op-eds that came out recently um, was about vouchers. So So many vouchers go unused. So if we had, and, and you think about the I fact, saw that. I didn't understand that article. What were they saying, Maria? So I, and again, I'm not an expert on this end of it, but I would say that vouchers are the ability to help supplement your, whatever the rental cost the is. Section the Section 8 voucher. The, the, the Section 8 voucher or whatever sort of a voucher system we could come up with where you would have access. And that then would allow access to anyone to go wherever they want to go where there's availability. So I think it I think that's actually a much better solution than trying to, you know, create, you know, 10% affordable through one of these desegregate bills or 30% in overriding local control of zoning and and destroying, you know, the the existing naturally affordable in You know, it just seems to me we've got a we've got a, a caller or two we're going to take this over the hour if we can. It just seems to me that what we're not really talking about the elephant in the room is that When it comes to the character of a community, we all know something beautiful in terms of architecturally acceptable, and we all know ugly when we see it. And one of the problems is we have a lot of ugly going up. Hmm. And I think I want to talk about that. I want to talk about beauty, architecture, beauty. We all know it when we see it. Yeah. And part of the problem with 830G or even discussing housing is we get into our heads about a lot of abstract principles when really, maybe we should, ought to be talking about the nuts and bolts of what a lot of these look like. I know there's a case winding its way up that is backed by a lot of prestigious people from Yale, a lot of liberal lawyers that have signed on to the brief, and they want to do something with a test case in Woodbridge. They would like to bust single-family zoning. They would like to tell towns and communities that somehow it's unconstitutional to have single-family zoning. Uh, what if anything do you know about this case, Alexis? Do you know anything about this oh, case? Oh, certainly. We've been we've been following it. Um, uh, you know, in a word, it would be devastating to Connecticut and probably to our country. Um, you know, zoning does not govern the the way people can buy a home. Zoning governs land, so I think what what, what they basically saying that people are not do not have a choice to buy to buy a multi multifamily home, or they don't have any. It's mostly single family homes there, right? So it's it's scary. I, I don't know what to say. Um, or, or we'll be watching it and keeping our members apprised. So basically, the person yeah. who purchased yeah. the property, the the organization that purchased the property, wants to put four units on the one single family's property, and it was denied. And so now it's it's winding its way through court. And and that's the scary part is that there are a number of and I think Alexis took a look at how many attorneys and have piled on and joined. The case, um, and so it, it seems like a very much a David and Goliath situation, and and it can be very precedent setting for the future. So, Kelly from Milford, welcome to the show. Thanks for calling in. You're chatting with Alexis Harrison and Maria Weingarten. Hi, good morning. Um, I just have a question about if there are any proposals 
like in the 60s, what were built um, for affordable housing, like the Levittown housing, which would kind of encourage home ownership. And they were smaller houses built for, let's say, people returning from the war. But they were- Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. We're very successful because it made a community. They were, you know, not the most luxurious houses, but they could buy the home. And it was a starter home, one one bathroom, two bathroom, two bedrooms, um, and, you know, maybe not in the central part of town, maybe out a little bit where there could be parking, but it would encourage home ownership. Uh, do we know? Well, I do know. I will tell you, Kelly, that there is a proposal for a massive development that is on the Greenwich-Westchester line of hundreds and hundreds of homes, not too far from the airport. I hear about it every now and then. It percolates up with me, but I don't know many more details of that. But are you suggesting that housing policy can be a way to build wealth if it's done in a single-family home way? Is that your is that your point? Yes, absolutely. And then maybe with some of the money coming in, well, a lot of the extra tax money coming from the legalization of marijuana, that they do something with a low-income mortgage. That people that don't have a high high income can get help with a state funded mortgage for these homes. Maria, you're the realtor. What do you think about this? I guess it depends on where you're building it, right? Mm, so if, if 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 something back in the 1960s, I think if we looked at <clears throat> any town in in Connecticut, it would not have been as thickly settled as it is now. And also, do we want Connecticut to look like Long Island? Which, no offense, Kelly, I couldn't wait to leave myself. You know, the thing about Long Island is. That it really developed with a lot of these large tracts of, you know, postage stamp lots, which were fine because they helped my parents, for example, buy a house for $35,000 in 1963 coming out of an apartment in Brooklyn. And they were able to do that. And boy, did they love their island in the sun. The problem is what happened on Long Island, and I can tell you this, is that what started out as these beautiful communities with appropriately sized houses on appropriately sized lots, as you just said, one, two-bedroom, three-bedroom, whatever they were, 1,500 square feet, 2,000 square feet. Over time on Long Island, most of the communities ignored their own zoning if they had it. And so you start to see, and you have seen, unfortunately, the land disappear in a maze and a haze of asphalt. And, and it, it's, it's very overcrowded, and it's not very pretty. And I think that's some, you know, one of the things I, I wanted to mention because someone in another discussion had talked about how sometimes you're right where they they'll take a, you know, in any town they can take a, you know, smaller home and then they'll they'll build it, they'll tear it down. It's considered a tear down, and then they'll right. build up something that's giant. Right. And our current zoning laws in most communities allow for that. Allow for most, that. Most most homes are built well within the zoning envelope. But the, the the interesting part of that, too, is that, that there are still is the opportunity when it is locally controlled for the neighbors to talk about. Well, that's a good point. You know, what's happening. Whether, if they care enough. If Well, and I think a lot of times they do because sometimes it does impact the runoff, the water runoff, and, and, and issues that come up. And that's exactly why we have local zoning. And that because it, it allows for those nuances of what are we adding on and what is the impact environmentally and, and how is it impacting the neighbors. And that's what they're, you know, this one size policy doesn't allow for that. It, what about the fact that Desegregate Connecticut called itself Desegregate Connecticut? In other words, 
They called themselves a name. They've since changed it. But their name was, I think, very indicative of their point of view, which was that housing policy correlated directly to an outcome-based result of too many black people congregating in too many cities and too many white people in too many suburbs. And so desegregate Connecticut was a way in which they could force integration via housing policy. What do you think about that, Alexis? Um, and they came um, into formation, I think, after... Kelly, thank you for the call. Uh, thank you for the call. After the George Floyd incident and a lot of, you know, calamities that happened to the black to black people. Let's, let's be honest about that. And um, no one wants to be on the wrong side of history. I think you've said that. I, To me, I have found that very off-putting. I actually started to read some of their materials when they first came into formation and I you know was trying to understand it and trying to give them a fair shake but I just couldn't get, couldn't get over their name desegregate Connecticut are you assuming I want to segregate people are you assuming I you know I am this that and I just I just don't I found that to be a non-starter for me what about you Maria well I think you know we're, we're sometimes confusing the economic issue with with a you know a, and with identity politics here, yeah. so I mean I think that that's part of the problem here is that yeah there are some communities where things are more expensive, but that you know that's not the way I do business. You know I'm not I'm not looking at if you've got a checkbook and you want to purchase, I'm all over it. And I'm going to work hard for you and find you the place that you want, and so that's you know that's the way we are operating in in today. So so I mean did it happen in the past absolutely was it wrong? Yes, it was wrong. And same thing happened with mortgages, right? So and it, so those are all issues in our past. But how do you cre- how do you solve for that? And I think part of it is if you're trying to move um, to give more flexibility, I think that it's going back to that vouchers again. That allows people to make decisions as to where they want to live and, and how much they want to spend for, you know, and, and have a supplement that allows them to move and decide where they want to be. And it gives them a little bit of a, a, a leg up that way. Um, so, so those are, to me, better options than necessarily just trying to build, you know, two, you know, ten percent or twenty percent affordable and override all of the local existing zoning laws. Yeah, and I also want to say zoning is a good thing. It is an orderly way to develop and grow a community, and I think it's gotten really negative connotations in the last few years. Yeah, I um, love it. It's it, the it, reason I moved to Connecticut. I'm not kidding. So, and I, uh, and, and I because know, it was completely exactly. ignored on Long Island. It just used to infuriate me. And zoning is not something most people talk about every day, but I think your listeners, we all have to be paying attention to what's going on in Hartford right now because serious bills are coming our way, and they've been coming from one party, and they've, you know, they've won the, the, the re-election this year, so maybe they feel like they have a mandate to do more. I don't know, but we have to watch, and I don't know if your legislators are going to tell you everything that's happening. I noticed I would I get all my newsletters from my you know respective state legislators. I get all of them. You know, I only have one state legislator, but I still read all who's, of them. Who's your state legislator? Uh, now it's Jennifer Lieber. Okay, um, but there was there was very little, you know, content about any of these bills, and. And I was really concerned. I was very worried. And that just kind of spurred me to get more involved with CT-169 Strong and to make sure people understood it, because it does matter. Are you sending out newsletters? If people are interested in this issue, can they subscribe to something where they will get informed? Yeah. We have uh, an active website, ct169strong.org. We have an active Facebook page where we constantly put out information. And once things kind of get more ramped up in the legislature, we plan on doing, um, you know, more um more newsletters. We, we'll detail out exactly what's in the bills. Um, you know, we, we try to get as much information as we can and share that as best we can with everyone. I have a, a, a one of our listeners who tells me as a comment, and I know what she's getting at, the sewers are the guilty party. I know what she's talking about. So this is a shorthand way for those who are not educated in land use. Um, when a sewer comes to a community, uh, by definition... Um, it means that a certain land, let's say an acre, doesn't have to set aside space for a septic field. Setting aside that that space for a septic field, by definition, means there's more open space in the community. And so it's sort of mission creep. So when you have a sewer that comes to your community, again, micro, macro. On the micro, individual homeowners are delighted. They don't have to pay for septic costs. They don't have to worry about a failing septic system. Um, and they like a sewer. But on the macro, you look at that same neighborhood 20 years hence, and you will see a creep 
of improvements, and I'm using the word improvements in the legal word. You'll see in a creep of buildings because um, there just doesn't need to be as much open space because you don't need septic tanks. And also it allows for those homes that are maybe, you know, a teardown, as you would say, or something that was maybe right. two or two-bedroom, two three-bedroom, be to go up and be bigger. That's right. You're right. And the issue with sewer versus septic, and this is an environmental issue. This is a big issue, is what's better for us as a community? Is it better for us to have more sewers? Because there's an argument to be made that we're at capacity in terms of our sewer, sewage cleanup and Long Island Sound and effluents going there, and that maybe it's better off to have individual septic systems clean on site. There's a lot of argument for that. But I've also seen argument to the reverse, too. I've also seen, well, maybe it's better as a community to have sewer. Do you guys know about this? So I, I will, you know, we were talking about it on the way here this morning. Um, there, is one, there was a working group. Part of HB 6107 was also the bill that passed in 2021 that took away character and all these other things, also added some working groups. And we are um, kind of concerned about, you know, I read through the bills. Those, those working groups have not yet had public hearings. There's four of them. One of them was on model code. One of them was on the state's uh, POCD, Plan of Conservation and Development. Um, another one was on sewerage. So, so on, and in that vein, they basically uh, came out and said that uh, we need to do more education on alternative sewers. But they didn't see the need to investigate whether they work well or not. Now, we know as we researched this when the bill was originally being proposed, because there were a number of sewer bills that tried to expand. So, so an alternate, let me go start back. When you have an alternative sewer, it means that you're creating a large septic system oh. for a community. Oh, so, like they did for the Y. So, right. In Westport. Or, or you could have like 10 homes in a little development that all have like one larger septic area. I see. And and what they... I didn't know about this. Yes. So, and there are these sort of, these different versions of this to allow for greater capacity. So, oh. would, so, so the idea being that then you can force more homes on, on a smaller small, lot. It's all about that. It's always about that, right? So, but what we heard that happened in Massachusetts is that some of these have since failed. They've and failed. The, and that the state has had to step in because the company clean it up and clean it up so it's ironic to me that they they want to create more education about these but they don't really want to investigate whether they work well or not and it's important to mention massachusetts because desegregates transit oriented bill is modeled i think after a bill after a law in massachusetts their tod bill uh nora from stratford hello welcome to the show you're on the air with alexis harrison and maria weingarten of ct169strong.org welcome Oh, thank you, Lisa. Um, it's me again. Uh, you know, I, I love you for bringing up this whole topic. And uh, I'm from Stratford, and our town motto is offering more from shore, forest to shore. Okay. Offering more from forest to shore. That's nice. But um, it, So it's a lovely little town uh, with a forest and a shoreline. Um, but this is fast becoming a lie, this motto, because big apartment buildings, big storage buildings are blocking the sky and shadowing the small businesses and restaurants and gutting our wetlands, um, tripling traffic flow, polluting, and, uh, and turning our town ugly, which is what I want to talk about, aesthetics. I do, too. Um, Go ahead, Nora, because I'm all about the aesthetics. Yeah, and so the building, uh, what uh, our latest uh, argument, you know, we go to the town council meetings and we state our cases, and the developers have their lawyers and their engineers there. Uh, and anyway, we just lost a case where uh, in this town center, uh, developers want to put up a monumental apartment complex. This is in our little town center. Wow. Um, there used to be a, a school there, which was leveled. But anyway, uh, the building of this apartment complex, in many uh, of our people's uh, opinions, will destroy the aesthetics, the character. Well, why can't the town... The so why of why town center. So where is the mayor and where is the P&Z insisting on nicer aesthetics? What's happening with that? 
I don't know. And you know, and you know, aesthetics does not just mean a pretty face. I mean, there have been several research studies done that show the correlation between improved neighborhood aesthetics and its positive influence on social cohesion, um, crime, mental health, crime. Trees bring death. down crime. A hundred percent. A hundred. When you and live in a pretty place, it has an enormous you know, the impact. The spirit, the 100%. beauty, or the lack of beauty affects people's spirit and mood. It does. Aesthetics. What, what, aesthetics are just important to the well-being of human beings. I agree with you, Nora. I agree with you. I'm sorry. And so I, I know, I know. And so, you know, we have this lovely little town, and we have Max Harbor, where um, the settlers landed, first landed in 1639 in this part of the country. And then, you know, we have all these uh, lovely little white steeple churches, etc. But it's all changing, and uh, and I feel that it's greed that is persuading our leaders to sell our heritage and put up these great, looming, oppressive buildings uh, in this town. It's it's so sad. Let me tell you, I was I'm just looking here at the Connecticut Post. This was just approximately a month ago. It was. Um it was. It says, despite pushback from the public, interesting, the public didn't want it. The Republican-controlled council on Monday voted 6-4 to four along party lines to sell the property to Romano Brothers Buildings. Is that the one you're talking about? The yes. four-story apartment building with 134 units. Yes. As well as and, uh, 20 I mean, townhouses. Yeah. And, uh, no, as well as 20 other townhouses, right. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And it's only on 3.6 acres. That's 154 units on 3.6 acres. That's, yeah, in, that's in extraordinary. Yeah, in a very dense little area, um, you know, these buildings are uh, great flat, soulless box buildings. Uh, it just darkens the spirit. And, Thank you, uh, Nora. We're going to move to other calls. I appreciate you calling. I think... Our audience is hearing what you're saying loud and clear. Six to four. I wonder if there'll be an appeal. Well, 30 days has passed, so I don't see evidence of an appeal, but maybe there's one that I just don't know about. Could be. Somebody could have appealed it, you know. It's six to four. It's a pretty close vote. Yeah. Thank you, Nora, for the, for the call. Let's go to Mark from Greenwich, who is a realtor. Hi, Mark. Welcome. What would you like to say on this topic? Well, you had uh, you had mentioned about the large development in, in Northwest Greenwich. Yes, yes. And, what is that? Um, Tell me about that. So that's uh, Tishman Spire, one of the uh, biggest developers in the uh, Northeast. Uh, they own they own a lot of the buildings in uh, New York City, uh, in Manhattan, and they proposed. I think it's down from four hundred to three hundred units. And they'd like to make them all market rate units. The town is pushing hard to um, make it a um, incorporate some affordable. The area there used to be the headquarters for American Can, and then also uh, after they left, it was for Blue Sky Media, the animation company. Oh, they've they left. Oh, what yeah. a shame! I knew people that worked there. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So, Mark, uh, and this is now, uh, my understanding is that this was going to be an old-fashioned, traditional, single-family residential development. Is that correct? It's going to, it's, uh, it's, I think, um, over 100 acres. It's it's isolated from the rest of Greenwich by 684. You actually can't get Ah, to the road in Greenwich. You have to go into New York State and then come back. Got it. I know exactly where that is. Yeah, yeah, you go like to Chappaqua around that area. I know exactly where that is. Okay. Yeah, so so they had a mixed-use facility with some single-family homes, some um, fourplexes, and uh, just a variety. And do you think that um, that this is a worthwhile development of land, in other words, taking away a commercial use and replacing it with residential. And when you say market rate, what does market rate mean in Greenwich? Are we talking everything over $2 million and up? What, what are we talking about? Our, our median price for a single-family home in Greenwich is $2.54 million. <laughs> um, That's so, a big number, Mark. 
That's that's oh, like yeah. is it, that the median highest price in the entire United States of America? It's got to be one of the top five. No, no, uh, Atherton, California, uh, holds that record. Okay, and it's a bunch of uh, of folks who fled Hong Kong and then also uh, tech people. <laughs> They're over three million. Okay, well, you're, but you're close. You're in you're in the ballpark <laughs> there. Yes. So so you're talking about basically building a beautiful new neighborhood for rich people. That's what they want to do. Well, it's expensive it, land, it, and it, that's what they want to do. Okay. Yeah, no, and and that's exactly right. I, I mean, the, the 830G has, you know, to my mind, two big problems. Okay. One, it does it does nothing to encourage uh, naturally affordable housing, uh, of which there is a fair amount in Greenwich, uh, but there are no benefits and they don't count it. It's really kind of a support program for government programs. Um, and then also the 30% standard is on the statewide standard, which makes – and so what happens is a small number of people get some really nice units because the units have to be the same size as the market rate units. So okay. you've got a $2,000 condominium um, or 2,000-square-foot condominium that's selling for $2.5 million that is uh, that can be rented for $2,800 a month, when at a market rate, that unit would be probably six to $8,000 a month. And so, who, and, and, and Mark, tell me something. Who in Greenwich actually gets access to those affordable units? Uh, they, are, they are publicly noticed. Uh, the town actually sends out notices to their employees uh, that these are, are available. But many of the town employees are over the income limits, and so they don't get them. But overall, 8-30G, when you look at it both in Greenwich and statewide, has been a, a major failure. Most of the units that have been proposed have, uh, haven't been um, ultimately built uh, for a variety of reasons. So they really need to reform that and do what uh, needs to be done uh, done to encourage affordable housing, both privately and publicly, and particularly in public-private partnerships. And what are some solutions to that? What, what are some concrete ideas, Mark? We're chatting with Mark, who's a realtor from Greenwich, who called into the show. What are some concrete ideas that you've noodled around that you want to suggest? So um, the ADUs are a are a good idea, but the the state shouldn't mandate what those should be. You also shouldn't require that they be limited for forty years. Um, you should be able to count them each year that they are rented or that's what I think. At, at I, an, at I, an I've suggested amount. that mark so many times that every town keep a registry, and if I have an apartment that I'm renting in my area you know in my house or a room share that i should be able to literally register it for the year and i should get a benefit from it i don't know what that benefit right. is but i that's should get some kind of a benefit for taxes. doing it something yeah a break yeah. on my property taxes some partial rebate there should be a reason why i want to tell the town that i'm doing this and then the next year if i don't want to i should be able to take myself off the list yeah and then the and then the other thing well two two other problems one Frequently, the cheapest house or land to buy is uh, has older houses, and so you end up with developers coming in and tearing down a lot of the historic. And it's homes so beautiful towns, many of which are occupied by the minorities that desegregate Connecticut is interested in protecting, only to take what was a hundred percent. Minority owned and make it into make it into thirty percent. The other problem is the numbers are the presumption is that if you build enough housing, a lot and a lot of minorities and and the other thing is it's not minorities as one of your people mentioned. It's actually economics uh, that we what you know I think we need to do because a lot of the people who work in the stores and coach the uh, the football teams and volunteers on the fire department, you know, those folks we need, and we need a diversity of people in our, in our towns. Mm-hmm. And most of this doesn't work that way. Yeah, 
Yeah. And what about the aesthetics, Mark? Because I think that aesthetics are not enough publicly discussed. It's as if we can use that as a throwaway line. Like, that's not as important as other values. I think aesthetics are incredibly important. And I also think that while generally speaking, taste is a little bit subjective, if you get a group of people in a room, most people um, can tell ugly when they see it. They can. (laughs) Well, and so generally... If you want to maximize the square footage, you build out to as close to the edge of the property line as you can go and as high as you can go. And it it means that you want to – and you don't spend as much money, as you say, um, on aesthetics. Right, and on the details. It, it really um, – right. yeah. 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 So we had, we had a proposal that luckily – uh, they ran out of financing on, but they were going. There were a whole series of houses in what's called the Fourth Ward in Greenwich, which actually was a minority community close to downtown Greenwich. And the developer bought up most of the houses on the block and was going to going to tear down the houses that are actually on the historic registry uh, with the U.S. government. Um, which and that can be done anywhere. They really need to clarify that. Mm. One of the things they could do is if they were to make um, more flexibility with some of the wetlands rules, because uh, a lot of the properties that might work well are also tend to be in lower areas, and you can build in, in an area um, and not harm the wetlands, but wetlands have been a, uh, have been a big issue uh, in town in, in particular. Well, it's interesting about the wetlands because one of the other things that concerns me about 830G applications is that the same people who are theoretically politically organizing to protect the environment are very gung-ho about all of these affordable housing propositions, and they don't seem to care about the stress on the environment. I'm going to talk about Norwalk, for example, where Diane Cece, who's the leader of the East Norwalk Neighborhood Coalition, has been on our show many times to complain that they're trying to overdevelop an area on the Mill Pond in Norwalk, which is a, a prominent area. It's basically the the first thing you see as you enter East Norwalk. And nobody seems to care about what's going to happen to the pond after they build this, you know, multifamily housing development on it. And you would think that the same people that care so much about wetlands, about environment, about displacing land would be up in arms about all of these multifamily density housing proposals, and yet they're very quiet. Yeah, and as I said, the you know there there are two ways to create um, lower cost housing. One is to um, allow greater density so that the land costs less per unit, and the other is to provide government subsidies. Um, at at the present time, what they need to do is also provide private incentives for that to work. Mm. Um, and you know, you you pretty much have to do one or the one or the other. And the state doesn't have enough money to buy their way out of um, out of these programs. They really need a rational, uh, profit motivated way to uh, to do this that doesn't destroy the aesthetics and the character of towns. Thank you very much, Mark, for the call. Thank you for the thoughtful conversation. I really appreciate it. Mark called. He identifies himself as a Greenwich realtor. I know Greenwich grapples with all of this. There's a tremendous, passionate commitment to keeping the historic base there, and um, I appreciate that. But thank you for giving us the skinny on this Tishman Spire proposal. Do you know where it is in the course of its application? How far has it come? Yeah, they're still they're still in the preliminary application where they're talking discussing conceptual designs with planning and zoning, and I think they're on, they're about to file their third iteration of it. Okay, we'll keep an eye on it. Thank you so much, Mark. Appreciate it, Alexis Harrison and Maria Weingarten. Thank you very much for being with us for almost the entire show. Thank you for having Pleasure. us. Thank you so much. So, if people want to subscribe to your newsletter and keep apprised of what's going on in bills this session. Follow us on Facebook and oh, also Facebook, of course. Yep, Facebook and, and Twitter. Okay, <laughs> so you don't just have to get a newsletter. You're posting no. on your own Facebook page. CT19Strong strong is a Facebook page? Mm-hmm. And a okay. website, CT169Strong.org.
Alexis Harris and Maria Weingarten, thank you very much for coming in today. A pleasure. Thank pleasure. you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please share it with your friends. And as always, feel free to contact me at lisa at lisawexler.com. 